You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mike Inatpanos. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Mark. What have you got for us today? G'day, Leo. Today, I'd like to talk about Discovery Indigenous. This scheme is an Australian Research Council grant program that provides funding to support research projects led by an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researcher. Examples of the objectives of this scheme include supporting excellent basic and applied research and research training by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders researchers, and also supporting and retaining these researchers in higher education institutions. The success rate of this scheme is actually pretty good at 24%, which is a bit higher compared to the standard discovery projects. The focus of these approved projects is mainly in two priority areas, mental health and environmental change. For example, there are projects on understanding indigenous people's understanding of cyberbullying, as well as looking at the impact of environmental change on survival of key marine and freshwater invertebrates. The eligibility requirements ensure that projects are assessed only against their peers, and that is obviously other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And these are, very briefly, the key aspects of Discovery Indigenous. So these Discovery projects, they're for Indigenous scientists, and it sounds like the focus areas are that they're hoping they will focus on Indigenous projects as well. Is it possible to be funded under this scheme as an Indigenous scientist working on an unrelated piece of science? Well, I, I couldn't access all the topics of the submitted projects, so I was unable to assess that. All of the projects funded all had a direct link to areas of interest for indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders people. So no would be what what I think, but I'm I'm not sure because I can't check what what the topics were. And have any of, I guess, the projects achieved milestones yet in terms of their, their research outputs? They are a bit hard, and that is obviously not just linked to this particular scheme. In general, it's hard to find particular outcomes of government-funded research projects like this because you would have to go check who got funded and what they've published and also what they've published that has specifically been funded by the Australian Research Council or the NHMRC. So it's not that easy to untangle that. Um, And and you said the success rate of these grants are higher than of regular discovery projects. Why do you feel that would be? Well, that's, that's going by our own statistics. So generally speaking success rates for discovery grant projects can be below, well below 20%. In this case, the success rate is well above 20%. So that is a really good thing, I think, because it will promote, it will encourage people to apply for these funding rounds because you have a higher chance of success than if you were an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researcher and you went in with the general pool and competing against everybody else in Australia. 
And do you know if all researchers on the projects have to be Indigenous Torres Strait Islander people, or is it only the lead researcher? Only the lead researcher. So you might get groups that are, include an Indigenous researcher who collectively are trying to focus on these these projects. Yeah, there, there, there are many universities around Australia that have specific schools or faculty areas that highly specialise in Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander research areas. So, and they obviously might not have the required expertise there. And particularly if you think on environmental change, they might have a a lead researcher that has an interest in that, but they obviously need to bring in other expertise. The key guidelines for this this scheme is that the first named investigator needs to be an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander researcher. And, And final question for our international listeners. What are Torres Strait Islanders? They are people that come from the islands in the Torres Strait, which is in the north of Australia. Right, so be- between the peak uh, of Cape York and Papua New Guinea? Yes, yes. So if my geography is correct, that's up in the north. It is. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Mark. We'll move on topics. So uh, I wanted to talk about impact investing, which follows some of the same threads about trying to get social impact alongside the, the funding that's being provided. So... In short, impact investment is a way of funding projects that have a social or environmental benefit at their core. A child service provider that specialises in high-needs children, an ecotourism operator run by local Indigenous people, or a new plastic alternative biomaterial could all be considered suitable for receiving impact investing. However, it's useful to unpick the term because there's often some confusion between this and things like philanthropy, angel investment, and ethical investment. And in many ways, the differences come down to the intentions and expectations of the investor themselves. Importantly, while impact investments do focus on social and environmental projects, there is also an expectation of financial returns. Impact investments will be in for-profit projects, and impact investors often take an equity stake in that company. This is quite different from philanthropy where the money is generally given and there is no expectation it would ever be repaid. Impact investing also differs from ethical investing. Ethical investing is where investors use a screening process to build a portfolio that excludes companies that don't meet certain criteria for ethics, environmental impact or social purpose. In most cases though, ethical investors build these portfolios of shares in public companies and they won't maintain a close or ongoing relationship with the company or its founders. By contrast, impact investors would often work on smaller projects and maintain that close personal relationship with the founders in the same way that an angel investor might support a startup. Anyway, that's probably enough from me. Fire away, Mark. Thank you, Leo. So an impact investor, would that be a person that only does impact investing or would this be just one of the parts that he or she has in the portfolio? I mean, that's, I guess, a personal decision for that individual. You would be an impact investor if you make an impact investment, just one, even if you maintain a portfolio of other investments as well. Most impact investors would fall into that category. They would have some impact investments and they would also have some traditional investments in their portfolio. So what is in it for the investor? I mean, presumably the investor would make a business decision rather than an impact decision. Well, I think the thing with impact investment is it's a blend. So you see these high net worth individuals in the past, they've had both an investment portfolio and a philanthropic budget. And they're kind of making this decision of what to allocate to which of those two and how much of their net worth they're happy to 
to do away with for the purpose of social good. Impact investing is blending those two. So you're making investments that you know will probably not do as well financially, um, but you're accepting that because the projects have a social or environmental positive outcome. Um, so it's a matter of what the individual prioritises in terms of what their money should be doing. So what would the reasons be why a company that does a social or env- environmental benefit, why would they not do as well as a, for, for a different phrase, a normal investment? I guess look at it this way. Say you've got two companies, uh, one that has sworn off single-use plastic and another that hasn't. And they're both competing for the business of customers at a cafe. Now, because plastics are so cheap and disposable, the company that has not sworn off single-use plastics might be able to provide those services for less and gain market traction that way. So the impact investment in the company that swears off plastic might need to provide more favourable terms so that company can then compete in the marketplace. That, that, I guess that's a brief explanation of why impact investments might be expected to do less well. They're, they're making some sacrifice in their business operations for the purpose of the social good. And how would that apply to tourism? Because that was one of the things that you mentioned at the start. So, I mean, ecotourism, I guess, if you have an ecotourist lodge, you probably expect that's going to have a lower density, a lower occupancy than a hotel that's cramming everybody in and, you know, concreting a car park, for instance. So the sacrifice they might be making there is that, you know, of a given land area that they've purchased, they can use far less of it to actually accommodate people. So that, that would be an example where the ecotourism approach has reduced the, the, the financial returns for the company, um, but in return it's, it's being softer on its surrounding environment. And a final question, do you have any feeling for the level of investment that impact investment is typically? Are we talking millions or is it dependent on the business? Percentage, maybe percentage-wise? Um, Look, percentage-wise, most of these early-stage companies would probably give up between 20 and 40% of the equity in the business, but it, it would vary widely depending on the project. How much financial need it has would dictate how big the funding pool is, and it, it, you know, it can be orders of magnitude from tens of thousand dollars through to tens of millions of dollars. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for tuning in, and see you next time. See you next time.